Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor Daniel Nemzer about his book, Infrastructures of Race, Concentration and Biopolitics in Colonial Mexico, out from the University of Texas Press in 2017. Daniel Nemser's Infrastructures of Race examines the long history of how Spanish imperial rule depended upon spatial concentration to control populations and consolidate power. Through four case studies spanning nearly 300 years of Spanish rule in colonial Mexico, Nemser illustrates how different modes of concentration, from centralized towns to disciplinary institutions, segregated neighborhoods, and general collections, reflected the prerogatives and imperatives of domination and expropriation. Compellingly, Infrastructures of Race argues that these spatial infrastructures and strategies were central and instrumental in the creation of racial identities and their inscription upon colonial subjects. Through designed and engineered spaces, racial identities were lived, sensed, and experienced, and as the built environment faded into barely noticeable infrastructures, race as well became naturalized. I'm very pleased to be sharing with you my interview with Professor Nemzer, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Daniel Nemser, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, this is a fascinating book, and I was wondering if you could tell me first a little bit about um, its genesis, how it came together. Um, yeah, uh, it's funny looking back on, I think, any of these kinds of projects um, and trying to tell the history of where it came from, uh, you know, because I think when you kind of tell, when you kind of narrate that story, it ends up sounding a little bit more coherent. <laughs> than it was at the, at the, during the process. Um, but, uh, if I had to give like one version of the story, um, what I would say is basically, so I, I, uh, went to grad school at UC Berkeley, um, and my PhD is in Hispanic language, Hispanic languages and literature. So I'm a, like a literary cultural studies person, although I also, um, worked with historians, uh, in grad school. And so I have a kind of a, historically informed project. Um, and the dissertation that I ended up writing when I was in graduate school was um, focused on the concept of mixture and purity. Obviously, uh, the sort of concept of mestizaje or racial or cultural mixture is really important in um, Latin American studies, uh, especially for folks who are working on more contemporary um, periods. Uh, but the idea that, you know, Latin America... The, sort of identity, Latin American identities were constituted through processes of mixture that began with the conquest. Um, and what I was interested in when I was writing my dissertation was the um, kind of to try to show that uh, or think through um, the way that mixture and purity are actually produced. Uh, they're socially constructed rather than being kind of self-evident or obvious categories. Um, there's a kind of a, for example, uh, just kind of a uh, conventional storyline for thinking about mixture in the history of Latin America that it sort of begins with the conquest when Spaniards and Indians come together and meet. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, it kind of unleashes a process of mixture that happens over the course of, you know, the, the, the next 500 years. Um, and, uh, but looking back at that history, it, if, you, if you think, you know, critically about it and approach it sort of from, from the perspective of um, not really, not, not tr- trying to take for granted what mixture and purity are. Um, and you start thinking about, you know, how is it that certain kinds of objects or certain kinds of people come to be defined as mixed or come to be defined as pure? Um, then you can start sort of 
breaking down those processes, breaking down those categories and seeing how they end up being produced um, historically. And so the dissertation was really focused on this kind of like kind of trying to approach the concept of mixture and purity critically by looking at a number of different moments in um, the history of colonial Mexico. And as I started kind of revising the, the dissertation in order to turn it into a book, which was a kind of a long process, uh, which involved writing a lot of new stuff and heavily editing um, pieces of the dissertation, um, what I kept on coming back to was the idea that, um, uh, that, that what I was really looking at when I was talking about mixture and purity was about sort of the relation between race and space. Because if you think about, you know, mixture and purity, for example, um, in a way, you could kind of define them as the arrangement of objects or bodies in space, right? Depending on how proximal or distant they are in some sense, or how you group them together into, to make coherent categories. Um, and so uh, I happened to, while I was um, sort of thinking through this, 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 uh, these questions and kind of starting to work on developing the book, I also ran, ran into um, a kind of a new field of scholarship um, that's coming out of departments uh, or disciplines like anthropology, especially, but other disciplines as well, um, a kind of a critical scholarship on infrastructure. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk probably more about this later, but um, this scholarship on infrastructure really sort of highlights the relation between um, kind of materiality and subjectivity, materiality and the practice of everyday life. Um, and so I found this concept really useful for developing uh, the this project that had originally started out being focused on sort of the abstract concept of mixture and sort of turning it into a, a project that was focused around the idea of spatial concentration. And so what the book looks at is this kind of long history of spatial concentration as a key practice or technique of colonial governance um, in Mexico specifically, but also in Latin America more generally. And I kind of look at the way that um, different kinds of different kinds of concentration projects uh, uh, were used and deployed and their effects, um, the effects that they had uh, over the long course of Spanish colonial rule uh, in, in Mexico. Yeah, right. And, and in the book itself, you, you begin, you frame it by beginning with this infamous character of Cuban history, General Valeriano Weiler. Why do you begin with him and how does that kind of set this up? Yeah. Um, so, so this this general uh, Valeriano Weiler is the, he's a Spanish general who sent to colonial Cuba um, at the end of the nineteenth century during the War of Independence that Spain fought against um, Cuban rebels. And the reason that I start the book with this anecdote is that he this guy is seen as the kind of um, you know, the, the, the kind of creator of the concentration camp. Um, a lot of historians who've looked at the concentration camp um, and have tried to kind of historicize the emergence of the concentration camp rather than kind of assume that, say, you know, uh, the concentration camp that we see in, say, Nazi Germany is this kind of uh, weird exception that is just kind of the, the, the appearance of evil on the world stage, um, a lot of historians have looked back and tried to trace a kind of a, a history of concentration camps. And a lot of them have come to the, to the conclusion that the, the concentration camp that we know of and that we're most familiar with, you know, maybe from the sort of Nazi experience, although it's obviously been deployed widely um, by lots of different uh, states. Um, 
actually begins in, uh, in the colonial context. Um, and so a lot of historians have pointed to the Spanish uh, use of the, the concentration camp. They actually called them um, campos de reconcentración or reconcentration camps um, in colonial Cuba it, between 1896 and 1898 as a, as a kind of an origin story for the, the concentration camp. And the reason that this is important is because um, it shows the kind of colonial uh, the, the, the colonial character of the camp, um, that it has to do something with the kind of exceptional character of the colony, the racialized character of the colonial other, and so on and so forth, that then only later can be kind of uh, boomeranged back to Europe and deployed uh, in Nazi Germany or, for example, in the United States um, with the, the Japanese internment camps during World War II. Um, and so the reason that I start the, the book with this anecdote is because if, you know, you see at the very end of colonial rule in the Americas, this is, you know, this, this war between 1896 and 1898 that Spain fights with, um, the Cuban rebels ends up being the kind of nail in the coffin in a lot of ways of, of Spanish empire. Um, at the end of this, this conflict, uh, Spain loses its last three kind of main colonies, uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. To the United States, um, and uh, and so so there's this kind of this kind of uh, the, the emergence of the concentration camp at this kind of last moment of Spanish uh, colonialism um, kind of begs the question: if the the character, if the colonial character of the concentration camp is key um, to its emergence, why is it that it only emerged at the very end? of this long colonial project that lasted for 400 years. And so my book kind of begins with this anecdote to kind of pose the question in a different way and suggest that maybe there's actually a longer history of concentration um, or concentration projects in Latin America that start from really from the 16th century. Um, and that when at the end of the 19th century, when the Spanish army is deploying the concentration camp um, as a sort of counterinsurgency strategy against Cuban rebels, um, rather than inventing something completely new, what they're actually doing is drawing on this kind of long history of repertoire, this long repertoire, or deep repertoire of practices um, that the Spanish had been using for, you know, hundreds of years before that. Yeah. Well, before we get, I guess, if, before we go back to Hernan Cortez and, and the conquest and, of Mexico, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about infrastructure and and why it's particularly useful for studying racial identities and what it what it lets us see that we can't see otherwise. Yeah. Um, so the 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 concept of infrastructure, I, I really um, came to it through, as I kind of mentioned before, this new scholarship in fields like anthropology and geography and history and other fields as well. But, but a lot of those, those fields are, are kind of the central places where it's been taken up. Um, and the idea is that infrastructure is not so much, or it, it, in these, from, from these perspectives, these disciplinary perspectives, um, infrastructure is approached not as a, like a technical concept. It's not like a question of like, how do you build a bridge in order to make it not fall down? Um, but obviously more as kind of like a critical approach to um, infrastructure and what it does, the way that it, that infrastructure is kind of create a substrate or uh, architecture that enables the practice of everyday life. 
Um, and because infrastructures kind of create these uh, systems that let us live in a particular way, um, they, they also uh, end up often um, coming to be taken for granted. Um, and that's especially the case because infrastructure is often located uh, kind of beneath the surface of the phenomenal world. Um, infra, infra obviously means beneath. Um, and so uh, we don't always think about um, the you know, networks of, of pipes and wires and uh, you know, the electricity grid and the, the, the stuff that's underneath the road and the roads themselves right, that enable us to, to live uh, uh, the, the kinds of lives that we live today. Um, when you walk into a room, you flip up, flick on the light switch and you don't think about all the stuff that's going on in the background to make that electricity come to the room and make the light work. Um, there's a kind of cliche that uh, is, goes like, um, you only notice infrastructure when it breaks. Um, and what that kind of points to is this kind of, uh, background, backgroundness, uh, the kind of, uh, norm, normalization uh, or naturalization of the, um, the modes of life that infrastructure enables. Um, and so uh, in this sense, there's a kind of, we could say that there's a kind of a material substrate um, that includes, you know, everything from, I don't know, roads and walls and ditches and buildings and boundaries and, you know, pipes and wires and all this stuff, canals, um, that enable the way that, uh, enable, enable how, we, how we live and act and think in the societies that we live in and that we create. Um, and so the, the reason that this is useful for me is because it helps to not only point to the way that Mexican, colonial Mexican society was organized in order to, you know, extract labor, for example, or extract resources, but also the way that um, bodies and communities uh, and populations were controlled. Um, and also the way that those, those communities came to kind of understand themselves. Uh, so that so maybe so the first reason I guess would be the kind of um, uh, material character the material and and uh, the material character of infrastructure, and maybe the second characteristic of why infrastructure is a useful concept for me here is to to think about the way that um, race can itself act uh, infrastructurally, um, and so if on the one hand I'm trying to argue that the material organization of the, the, the kind of material organization of colonial, of colonial life um, is part of what enables the emergence of categories like racial categories, uh, subjectivities like racialized subjectivities. Um, then on the other hand, it may be useful to think about race as itself operating infrastructurally in a sense as well. So um, if you think about infrastructure as a kind of a system that enables the operations of other systems, um, sometimes it's, you know, we, we tend to think about infrastructure as sort of encompassing physical objects, right? Like as a, a lot of the, all the, ca the, the examples that I've mentioned up so far are, you know, things like pipes and, you know, I don't know, the electricity grid. Um, it doesn't necessarily include people, but some critics, uh, have kind of taken a step back and thought of infrastructure in a kind of a, I guess, more expanded sense, um, where people, uh, can, uh, participate in those uh, sort of enabling systems. Um, 
And, you know, in certain ways, it becomes difficult to kind of figure out what counts as infrastructure and what doesn't count as infrastructure. And so it depends on your, your approach to it. Um, but uh, to the extent that people can serve it as kind of enabling, as part of an enabling system that enables other systems to function, then you could start to think of like race, race as operating infrastructurally to the extent that it facilitates uh, the extraction, for example, of resources or the accumulation of capital or particular practices of domination in a particular society. So on the one hand, um, race is produced by the infrastructural organization uh, of colonial Mexico, right? This is kind of the main argument that I'm trying to make in the book, um, that race is a, a product of the way that bodies were organized in space materially. At, but then on the other hand, um, I'm trying to suggest that uh, race, once it sort of starts to be constituted, itself starts to function infrastructurally in the sense that it enables systems of domination and accumulation to continue into the future. Mm. So, so then if we go back to following on that, if we go back to you know, the earliest days after the conquest or after the fall of Tenochtitlan, um, you know, what is the, the, the spatial situation look like to the Spaniards as far as how they're going to rule this territory or this former empire of the Aztec? Yeah. So, um, the, the, there, there's a couple of things to, to, to keep in mind about this, but I think one of the biggest, one of the most important things to think about, um, uh, to recognize, is that when the Spanish arrive in uh, what they called New Spain uh, or colonial Mexico, um, and they started to kind of think about how they were going to govern um, this territory, uh, one of the, the, the biggest obstacles that appeared to them was the fact that, it, according, according to them, um, indigenous communities were really spread out. They were very dispersed. And this problem of dispersion appeared as one of the sort of most significant problems um, for Spanish colonial rule. Um, and uh, what they, you know, the, the reason that they saw it as a problem, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of kind of pretty obvious reasons, right? One is that it's harder to control people if they're spread out um, and you have to keep an eye on people who are in living in communities that are really dispersed, that are maybe in located in sort of um, uh, unfavorable terrain in mountains or in forests, something like that. Um, it's also hard to extract resources from them, extract labor and tribute payments from uh, a colonized population if they're you know living very far apart. Um, it's also for the Spanish. It was really important to uh, to 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 oversee the sort of Christianization um, of the indigenous population. And so it's harder to oversee their spiritual growth, right? And make sure that the indigenous population is continuing to do the Christian practices that they've been, uh, that have been imposed on them. Um, if they're living really far apart uh, and spread out and in these difficult to reach places. So, um, for the Spanish, uh, from really early on in the 16th century, uh, uh, they, they, they start to see this, this, the dispersion, this supposed dispersion of the indigenous population um, as, a, as a huge problem. Um, now, there's a, another question that's important, which is you know, whether uh, dispersion was actually, was actually something that, was, that characterized the indigenous po- population when the Spanish arrived. Um, 
And I think it's important to recognize that uh, a big part of what the Spanish talk about is that um, has to do with their their expectations uh, more maybe with their expectations than what they what was actually there. But what the Spanish you know saw was something that didn't necessarily live up to what they imagined as you know civilized life. And so whether or not um, the like dispersion was a real feature of indigenous life in colonial Mexico when the Spanish arrived, um, the Spanish perceived it to be a really big problem. Even in the places where uh, there were, you know, sort of concentrated populations, like in Mexico City, for example, um, after the, the violence of the conquest, you know, which involved a lot of just destruction and death, um, there was a kind of a, an emptying out of the population um, that obviously that didn't completely empty out the population. There were still millions of indigenous people left. Um, but the, the combination of war, violence, exploitation, um, and so on and so forth really had a massive impact on the indigenous population of colonial Mexico. And so um, in a way, what I'm trying to say is that the Spanish both perceived a certain kind of dispersion in indigenous territory when they arrived, but they also materially produced a sort of dispersion or emptiness through their violent policies um, that then they kind of realized or decided that they needed to kind of fix through a kind of concentration project by gathering together the indigenous communities into orderly or centralized towns. And so what, what can you describe these towns and, and, and what their plan and, and structure was? Sure. So there's, so the, the first chapter of the book talks about this uh, project, this kind of, maybe you could call it an initial project in the history, the long history, the long genealogy of concentration in colonial Latin America. Um, it was called uh, Congregacion or Congregation. And essentially what uh, its objective was, uh, was to um, forcibly centralize uh, indigenous communities um, and make them, bring them together to live in these orderly planned sort of towns that were laid out on a grid of streets. Um, and they were, uh, you know, designed in order that all of the houses in the community were supposed to be within, you know, hearing distance of the church bell. Um, and they were um, measured and sort of calculated in a sense that they, it would be easy to keep track of like how many people were living in the communities so that you'd be able to calculate and um, extract tribute or labor uh, more easily from those communities. Um, and the houses, even according to you know what what the what the Spanish were uh, intending to produce on the ground, the houses that they wanted the indigenous people to live in were supposed to have very similar characteristics. There was supposed to be a certain number of rooms, rooms for children and adults, rooms for boys and girls. You know, so there was a kind of a, a, a sort of a disciplinary project of segmentation that was built into um, even the architecture of uh, the. The, the houses that were um, put together in these communities. Now, um, the part, part of what's complicated about the, this history is that um, the, uh, so the, the, the indigenous people, especially the, the Nahuas, um, who are the, the people who we sort of generally call the Aztecs today, um, they uh, w- had t- 
towns that were organized around what they called um, Altepet, uh, which was a Nahuatl word that kind of it kind of means water and mountain, uh, but it was it was used to kind of refer to these these kind of city ethnic states or these cities, kind of like city state kind of things. Very hard to define the term or translate the term into English. Um, and uh, there's a lot of historians or ethno historians who've looked at this, um, the, this, this, these Altepet. Um, and uh, what they've sort of talked about is that one, one of the things that they found is that these towns were actually split up into different, different little towns um, that were organized together in a kind of a non-hierarchical way. So an Altepet might be made up of, you know, a certain number of little towns that were spread out over a somewhat wide um, ter- territorial space. Um, in fact, they may be, there may be towns that were interspersed with each other um, over a single sort of territorial unit that might belong to different Altepet. Um, and so when the Spanish arrived, uh, they saw that these towns, they, they, they thought of the towns um, in a, in a particular way, they interpreted what they saw, that they, what they saw on the ground in a particular way. Um, and they essentially ended up kind of creating a hierarchy, um, where they would say, well, the littler towns must be the ones that are dependent on or subject to the bigger towns. Um, so whereas, uh, the, the, the Nawas, uh, Nawa communities were, were organized in non-hierarchical ways where the kind of rule would rotate from community to community, from sort of um, constituent unit to constituent unit. Um, the Spanish, when they arrived, they kind of imposed a hierarchy on these towns and decided that the bigger ones usually were were the, the kind of ruling or head towns. Um, they called them cabeceras or head towns. And the littler ones were subject towns. Um, and so the head towns came to have certain rights um, and certain advantages that were not given to the, the subject towns. So why is this important? Well, it's important because um, it shaped the way that this project of concentration uh, played out on the ground. One of the ways that con- uh, congregation happened was by um, you know, grouping together some of these littler towns um, into one sort of location whether it was one of the already existing bigger towns or whether it was in a, a completely new town that was in maybe in a, in a valley, um, a more accessible valley, um, so that it would be more accessible to the Spanish. Um, and so the, often um, people, communities from different Altepet were gathered together um, in these centralized towns. And even when uh, communities from the same Altepet were gathered into one centralized town, um, there were still ways in which this process of centralization or concentration um, produced spaces that were understood or were felt as kind of like mixed spaces. That's because, um, as ethno historians have uh, found, um, a lot of times these, uh, the, 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 not only did Altepet have their own kind of identities attached to them, their own ethnic gods, their own ethnic sort of senses of self, um, but also a lot of the constituent units of the Altepet had a similar sense of identity. And so when um, the, the, the Spanish started to, to group these sort of little towns together, 
they ended up bringing together people who thought of themselves as maybe belonging to different sort of identities, right? As, as having different, uh, different kind of senses of who they were and who their communities were. Sometimes they even spoke different languages. Um, so there were people who spoke Nahuatl who were brought together with people who spoke other indigenous languages um, in particular parts of, of central Mexico. Um, and so once they were gathered together, uh, part of what my argument is, is that the, these older identities started to kind of break down um, within these new, this new context uh, for a lot of complicated reasons. But basically it had to do with um, whether, which kinds of communities could had access to special privileges. And so people in belonging to some of the smaller communities ended up starting to separate themselves off from the Atepet that they had previously belonged to in order to claim the kind of head, head town status. Um, mm -hmm. And overall, the, this process of gathering the communities together contributed to the decline of the Atepet as a way of organizing identity and ended up being replaced by a kind of a more generalized sense of Indianness or indigeneity um, that the Spanish imposed on the indigenous population uh, through practices like um, forced labor uh, and tribute, which were these obligations or that were that were that the Spanish applied to the indigenous population as a whole. So to take take a step back, the argument is basically that um, this congregation project. Um, while it, uh, uh, on the one hand, kind of organized indigenous life, um, it aimed to produce uh, these towns that were, that were well-ordered, that could be easily governed, that could be easily subjected to spiritual oversight, that from which uh, resources and labor could be very easily extracted. Um, they also uh, contributed to the emergence of a new indigenous identity. Um, uh, the, the emergence of the Indian as such um, that was not only a category that was imposed onto people, but that people could come to understand themselves as fitting into. Um, and so there was this kind of, uh, I guess you could call it a, 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 su a subjective effect of um, this concentration or centralization project. That was kind of the basis of Spanish colonial rule for, for many yeah. years. <clears throat> right. And so, um, there's there's a lot in this book, and I know we're not going to have time to get to all of it, but uh, hopefully we can. But one thing I want to get to is uh, the the important material in chapter three about the the ride of 1692, and, and and this is important because it's it's when it's sort of the inverse in a certain sense of what's going on with the congregations with uh, where where uh, the racial structure uh, at least for a moment sort of collapses. Can you? Explain that and um, how how that what that reveals about this this um, imbrication of infrastructure and race in the in the in the empire. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's uh, so the third chapter of the book um, looks at this riot uh, that happened in Mexico City in 1692 um, and the kind of aftermath of the riot. Um, so uh, to, to kind of um, take a step back, uh, Mexico City, um, after the, the, the conquest, um, was uh, arranged in, in, a, in a sort of on the basis of segregation, a kind of a segregation, segregated sort of cityscape. 
Um, and in many ways, segregation had the same kind of foundation as the project of congregation, which was that um, the indigenous population needed sort of to be cared for and protected. Um, and the Spanish, you know, they thought of their sort of colonial rule uh, as uh, caring for the people that they were um, sort of dominating, right? Um, and that they were, uh, you know, helping them become, helping them live better, uh, helping them become sort of civilized and helping them become Christian, which was, you know, for them, according to them, it was really the, the best thing that you could do, right? Um, and so there was this idea in, in the, the congregation, in the, in the congregation policy um, that uh, congregation was actually for the indigenous people's own good. It was for their benefit to be brought together to live in these, these orderly towns. Um, and the same was true of, uh, the, of Mexico City. Uh, so it was organized on a segregated plan where um, the center of the city was supposed to be for Spanish people to live. Um, and the districts that surrounded that uh, the center, central part of the city were supposed to be for um, the indigenous population. And they were um, organized, they were broken down into parishes. Um, so each Indian parish you know, had a, a priest that oversaw it or had, an, had, you know, had priests that oversaw it. Um, and they were supposed to be dedicated just to kind of seeing, seeing to the Indian spiritual health. Um, and the Spanish in the center of the city had other uh, parishes, belonged to other parishes. Um, and so this, the city was kind of organized on this segregated plan. Now, obviously, in practice, uh, life wasn't segregated. Um, and especially over time, um, lots of people who weren't indigenous, you know, ended up moving into the indigenous districts and lots of people who weren't Spanish ended up living in the center, the Spanish, the, the kind of Spanish center of the city. Um, and when, so in 1692, um, there was this really massive riot that happened in the center of Mexico city, um, where tens of thousands of people, um, you know, looted the marketplace that was located in that central plaza. It's, today, it's known as the Socalo. Um, really, really big uh, central plaza. It, was, it had At that time, it had a market in the center. Um, so the marketplace was completely looted. The Viceroy's Palace, which borders on one side of that plaza, was destroyed. Um, and the Spanish really you know, lost control of the city. And in, in a sense, they lost control of the colony. Um, for a very short time, but um, it was, you know, really significant, especially for them, you know, looking back on it, they, they, they really were uh, impacted by, by this, this event. And so in the wake of the uprising of the riot, um, there's all, all of this kind of textual production by the colonial authorities and by colonial elites who are trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong, um, how could this have possibly happened? Uh, how could the Indians have risen up and you know, attacked us and had so much success in destroying, destroying all this stuff um, and challenging our authority? Um, and, you know, by figuring out what the causes of the riot are, we can also figure out what the, how to prevent them in the future. Um, and so it turns out that what, the, what ended up being kind of like the main, the, the, the main cause uh, that was identified in the aftermath of this riot um, was uh, essentially mixture 
um, it was essentially that uh, the people who were supposed to be living in the indigenous neighborhoods had actually kind of like infiltrated into the center of the city um, and that it was this uh, unruly kind of like mixed population that was living in places where they were not supposed to be living that had ended up causing the breakdown of this infrastructure of segregation that had ruled for, you know, a long time for, that had been there for, you know, since the beginning of Spanish colonial rule. Um, so in, in a sense, uh, if concentration or sorry, if congregation, uh, centralization of these indigenous communities is the kind of represents the, 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 the point of creation or the moment of creation of this kind of like segregated infrastructure, um, that lasts for a couple of hundred years. Um, this is the moment where it breaks down, or it's at least the moment that it's recognized as breaking down by the Spanish authorities. Um, and there's a kind of a recognition that something has to be done either to reimpose segregation or to replace it. And so um, the Spanish authorities asked a number of the uh, colonial elites, um, including uh, the, the me members of the religious orders who were the heads of the um, these indigenous parishes in the, the outer districts of Mexico City, um, and also uh, this colonial intellectual uh, named Carlos de Siguenzi Gongora, who's really well known in um, colonial Latin, colonial Mexican studies because he wrote he wrote and published a lot of um, really interesting works um, in a lot of different genres, everything from like astronomy books to history. He was really interested in indigenous history. Um, to, uh, you know, kind of more directly administrative documents, uh, like the ones that I look at in this chapter, which is basically kind of a proposal for segregating or resegregating the city, uh, for reproducing the kind of purities, right, on which the foundation of Mexico City had been based. And so Siguenza, what he does is this, this intellectual, he kind of draws a line where he says that the, um, the, the Spanish government should say, you know, basically all of the Indians that live within this, this line, this central district need to move back out, need to leave by a certain amount, of, by a certain date. Um, and that way we can secure the kind of Spanish character of the center of the city. And it doesn't matter who, uh, you know, who lives in the districts, right? All the, you know, indigenous people, but also everyone else who isn't Spanish, right? Who isn't white, um, can live there as well. Uh, and so he, he kind of writes this proposal for segregating the city in that way, in a way, trying to secure the purity of the Spanish center, the Spanish core of the city. Um, and the, on the other hand, the, um, uh, religious figures, um, also agree completely with segregation. They think that the, 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 the riot was caused by mixture, by the breakdown of segregation. And so they want to resegregate, resegregate the city as well. But for the religious actors, um, it's not so much the Spanish, the purity of Spanishness that they want to save through, through resegregation. It's the purity of the indigenous population that they want to save. So for the, um, the heads of these indigenous parishes, these Indian parishes, um, they, they also support segregation, but they call for everybody who's not Indian to be moved to the center of, of the city of, of Mexico city. So they want to kind of um, 
bring the Indian districts back to the way that they supposedly were at the beginning of the Spanish colonial project. And that way, the Indians will be, you know, free from the negative influences of the other races, right? Um, and in the end, uh, the, it's the, these religious figures who end up developing these new technologies of kind of population control and tracking, in a sense, um, that ends up being serving as a kind of a new way of imposing segregation um, in the wake of the riot. So these uh, religious actors, in order to kind of like generate their proposals and do research on like how many members of their parishes are actually living in the center of the city, um, they go out and do these kind of walking tours and they write up these like censuses sort of um, where they say, you know, oh, there's like in, on, at this address in the center of the city, there's like these, these families with this number of people um, who have these jobs and they're this old. Um, and they kind of create a lot of data um, of where the members of their parishes are living outside the parishes. Um, these documents are called padrones. Uh, they're kind of like these proto-censuses. Um, and in a way, the, the padrones end up um, serving as a kind of a basis for a new mode of segregation that ends up being imposed after the riot, which, um, you know, they, they try to get people to go back to their, to go back to, they try to get the, the, the indigenous people to go back to the indigenous districts and they try to get the Spanish people to go back to the center of town. Um, but that doesn't necessarily hold for very long. But what does hold is this kind of attempt to track people's movement through space and movement through the city by using these kinds of census documents that allow them to sort of figure out who's living where. So whereas segregation had previously been a kind of um, technique that was built into the, you know, the actual like physical space of the city. Uh, in the wake of this, this, this riot where segregation had broken down, there's a kind of a realization that they need other tools to make segregation continue to work. Um, and this kind of, these, these kind of tracking or monitoring or surveillance tools are what emerge, uh, as a way to kind of supplement the failure of the infrastructure, the, the infrastructure of segregation. Um, at the end of the 17th century. Hmm. Uh, and so do you think, do you see there being, um, considering these two episodes and, and uh, I suppose the rest of the empire, do you see there being a, a narrative of infrastructure and race to follow here? Or um, are what we're seeing more like uh, reiterations of uh, a certain pattern? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in some ways, I, th I think uh, I don't want to tell a story in the book where um, there's a kind of a neat progression from one kind of concentration to the next kind of concentration. So I definitely don't want to argue that, um, you know, congregation is the first kind of con concentration. And then, you know, in chapter two, I talk about another project, which is called Recogimiento, basically the creation of these like disciplinary institutions that are sort of like schools and prisons mixed together. Um, and then in the third chapter, I talk about segregation. Um, uh, and so I'm not trying to say like that, you know, first there's congregation, then there's recogimiento or, you know, enclosure, and then there's segregation. But um, I do think that people are drawing on the, the history of um, these concentration projects. So in the wake of the 1692 riot, um, the people who are writing about segregation are referring back to the same laws from the early 16th century 
that were the ones on which um, congregation was based, right? And they're using them to, you know, they claim that they're reproducing congregation, that they're just trying to go back to the way things were in the 16th century. But in reality, they're kind of proposing something different. Um, and so in a way, I would say, you know, there's important, there are important resonances between these different moments and these different kinds of projects. Um, but they also may point to, uh, you know, new crises, new tensions that are emerging at particular, at sort of later on, um, new sort of impasses that have to be resolved. Um, and uh, in, you know, the late 17th century, there's a lot of new circumstances on the ground um, that aren't present in the early 16th century. Um, for example, uh, you know, new kind of like economic arrangements where um, people are being drawn, indigenous people who had previously maybe lived in these outer districts and had been able to grow crops on their on their land, either within the city or you know near the city, are now being are now kind of wage laborers in the center of the city, working for Spaniards, or um, you know just the changing demographics of the colonial population. Um, so there's these new conditions on the ground, and I, I guess what I would say in terms of the narrative is that um, the 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 new 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 conditions. Um, create new crises and people draw on this repertoire that these kind of colonial elites are drawing on this, this, this repertoire that they have of congregation projects, but trying to deploy them in new ways, right? And they end up with these new techniques uh, that maybe work in different ways uh, than they had worked before. Mm. Yeah. And, and then, okay. And then in the last chapter, you take a very different turn and look at something uh, uh, quite distinct from these earlier ones. And this is the botanical garden and uh, well, in Madrid and in Mexico city. Uh, why that? And what does that show us that's going on differently here uh, at the end of the of Spanish rule in Mexico? Yeah. So the last chapter is, uh, it, it is really different. One way that I think it's it's useful um, to think about is that these infrastructures of concentration, these these concentration projects that have been deployed over the course of the colonial period, had generated you know uh, all sorts of um, uh, efficiencies in terms of governing, right? But they'd also generated a lot of resistance, and you know that becomes really clear in in this this massive riot that happens in 1692. But it had been clear all along because there were people who ran away from uh, their congregated towns. There were people who ran away from their disciplinary institutions. Um, and so there's a sense in which um, concentration had always been uh, a difficult project to impose. Um, and in the 18th century, something, well, a lot changes. Um, uh, but um, one of the things that changes is that there's this kind of um, new uh, emphasis or interest in um, classification uh, and taxonomy. And there's a kind of a sense that um, collecting things, con concentrating things, um, continues to be a really useful form of governance. It continues to be a really useful form of um, control, but it also is a useful form for generating new knowledge. Um, and so you start seeing things like uh, botanical gardens, right, which in a way they kind of serve a similar purpose. They concentrate uh, dispersed uh, objects at centralized locations. Um, and what's maybe 
different about, uh, you know, and, and in a similar way, you could say that like the botanical garden, like the, say, congregated, congregated town, um, also serves to uh, facilitate, say, capital accumulation, right? Um, in a diff- maybe in a different way, but there's a kind of an extraction that happens at both sites. Say, at the, in the congregated town, you're getting resources out of the indigenous population. In the botanical garden, you're trying to grow particular crops that you can then kind of commodify um, and sell or uh, acclimatize them to be able to grow them in a different place than they had been previously able to be grown in order to generate more revenue. And one thing about uh, concentrating plants is that they don't run away, right? And so there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a, you know, in a sense, you know, the shift to plants um, as a sort of object of concentration uh, resolves one of the main problems um, that had emerged uh, over the course of, you know, hundreds, hundreds of years of concentration project, which, which is the problem of resistance. Um, and so uh, if you think about, and well, there's another aspect to it too, which is that um, uh, in, in this time period, in the, in the 18th century, in the Enlightenment, um, there's this, as I kind of mentioned before, there's this kind of uh, new interest in classification um, and especially classification of things based on their um, external characteristics or attributes. Um, and plants are really easy to classify in that sense. And so the, the critic, um, Michel Foucault, who, who's written a lot about this, um, he says in the, uh, his book, The Order of Things, that um, the pl- plants in, in the 18th century, plants kind of end up being the, um, the b- being able to, being the kind of most important or easiest or most significant or central kind of object around which knowledge starts to be produced. And so there's a way in which um, centralizing plants and studying plants in the 18th century comes to also be a way of talking about uh, sort of people and race and difference between all living things um, more generally. So the way that happens is that it has to do with the relation between um, the, the, the kind of thinking about the relation between uh, external factors like environments and uh, the bodies on which they act. Um, so obviously, uh, this is a, a big problem for um, people who are trying to sort of take, say, tropical plants and grow them in maybe in Europe, right? Uh, there's a lot of interest in growing sort of exotic colonial plants um, in the sort of cent- botanical gardens in the imperial centers. Um, and obviously this ends up being a problem because it's really hard to reproduce the clim- climate in which they're accustomed to grow. Um, and so there's a sense in which, you know, in uh, the, the, there's a need to be able to control the climactic external factors in which these bodies, these plants are being, uh, these plants are being grown in order to figure out, you know, how, how can we, what, what is a plant? You know, what makes this plant unique? What is it? What are its characteristics? Um, and so the, this chapter, the, the fourth chapter in the book looks at the way that, um, that the kind of attempts to reproduce, uh, different climactic, uh, uh, climactic features in the botanical garden in Madrid and in Mexico city, um, as a way of getting at the, science of um, concentration. And I basically argue that at this time, um, concentration becomes 
not so much an art of governance, but a science of governance. And it ends up also having kind of a scientific character um, that not only enables them the generation of new knowledge, but also it kind of becomes to follow particular rules, right? Um, and so uh, the, you know, in Madrid, on the one hand, um, there is a kind of a, uh, an attempt to replicate colonial environments by using technologies like greenhouses, for example, which doesn't really end up working. Um, in colonial Mexico, in Mexico City, there's an attempt to um, try to reproduce a wide variety of climates by growing, by, by building the botanical garden on a, on a mountain, um, which, with, you know, which has different sides of the mountain that have received different amounts of sunlight and have different kind of temperatures, average temperatures, and receive a different amounts of rainfall. And so there's a kind of try, uh, there's an attempt to kind of rationalize um, the relation between external factors, you know, uh, that act on um, living things um, and those living things themselves. Um, and in a way, what's, what, what, what is kind of comes out of this experience is a kind of a recognition that, or an, an, an argument or an assumption that certain kinds of bodies are um, impervious to uh, the, the operation of external feature, external forces. Um, and other bodies um, are subject to determination by external forces. Um, and that whole discussion ends up having a lot of uh, importance for thinking about race as well, because at this time, there comes to be a kind of an, assu an assumption that certain kinds of people, right, are subject to external determination, while other kinds of people are not subject. They're autonomous, and they, they are bodies that, that, you know, their bodies have a different kind of um, substance uh, uh, than the, the, the bodies of um, the colonized population. So it, that's a long way of kind of getting to the answer about how plants are being made to speak about race in this, uh, in the 18th century through projects of concentration that in certain ways depart from, but in other ways resemble these, this long history of concentration projects that have been going on for hundreds of years. Hmm. Uh, that that's fascinating. That's a fascinating part of the book, and one that I, I certainly want to flag for for listeners to um, to read on their own. Um, uh, we're going to be running out of time in a few minutes here, Daniel. Is there anything about the book that we've not covered that you want to make sure is on this uh, recording? Um, yeah, I guess maybe the one thing that I would say really quickly is just that um, I think that the book kind of emerges as uh, or one of the main interventions that I'd, I want to make, you know, so I've talked a lot about like colonial Latin American history um, and colonial Latin American studies, but there's also a kind of a, a broader argument about, um, I guess, about race, like race theory uh, that I wanted to, that I want to make in, in the book. And the, the argument is really that, um, you know, Social, so there's a kind of a, a, a recognition, a conventional recognition today. It's kind of become a common sense that race is socially constructed. Um, but uh, there's a, often a lot of ambiguity about what, so, what social construction actually means. And I think there's still um, a lot of assumptions that race is, uh, you know, maybe a discursive category. It's something that people kind of imagine. It's an idea that then gets applied to uh, particular bodies. 
And I, w- one of the main interventions that I really want to make in, with the book is to try to insist that the production of race is not something that just happens at a kind of a discursive level. Um, it's not something that just happens in the sphere of ideas, um, but actually has a material character. Um, and that has, to, and this material character has to do with the way that bodies are arranged in space, um, populations are arranged in space, also the practices that are imposed on those bodies. So like the requirement to sort of pay certain amounts of tribute or do perform a certain amount of forced labor um, would also be productive of race in the sense that um, race is something new that emerges through domination. Um, and so uh, I guess the, the, the infrastructure, in that, it's in that sense that the infrastructure of race, the infrastructural character of race becomes really important. It not only has this materiality in that it's built through a kind of a material organization of space, right, that weaves colonial space together in really physical ways, but also um, it ends up functioning materially in that race, after it's been created, continues to reproduce these patterns of domination and accumulation that are enabled by colonial rule. Hmm. Um. That's an excellent way to put it, and I suppose a good place to stop. Uh, can you tell me just a little bit about what you're working on since this book has been completed? Sure. So the, the, my, my new project that I've been working on um, is also about infrastructure, but um, rather than being focused on infrastructures that uh, concentrate or contain bodies, um, I'm, I'm writing about, um, about infrastructures that facilitate circulation, uh, particularly roads. And so there's a, uh, there's a particular road. I'm actually looking at one very specific road in colonial Mexico, um, which is the road between Mexico City and, uh, the port of Veracruz, um, in, uh, the late 16th and early 17th century. So why is this road important? It's important because essentially all of the commodities that are being extracted from Mexico, all of the silver, um, that's being extracted from Mexico and everything else, all of the commodities that are coming from Europe, and the enslaved Africans that are being imported into Mexico and all of the commodities that are coming from, or a lot of the commodities that are coming from China to Europe that are shipped through the Philippines, which was also a Spanish colony to Acapulco on the Pacific coast of Mexico, then up through Mexico city to the port of Veracruz and then on to Europe. Um, all of those commodities from China end up coming along this road as well. turns out that this road also went through an area that was beginning to have sugar plantations set up on it. And so there were a lot of, enslaved Africans who were being uh, relocated to those areas, which also meant that there were a lot of um, uh, maroons, right, Uh, escaped slaves, uh, running away from the plantations and setting up maroon communities in the mountains and and, and forests around them. Um, And these maroons, apparently, during this period, were doing a lot of raids on the wagons that were carrying the commodities along the road. And so the sort of secure circulation, the safe circulation of commodities along this highway, um, very important commodities, including, you know, the king's silver, essentially. Uh, uh, so the, the so securing that circulation from um, robbery, from uh, these kind of like racialized threats that were associated with um, banditry in this period um, becomes a really important uh, aspect of colonial rule and really uh, of the kind of foundation of global commerce in this moment of the, the initial rise of the world system, the capitalist world system um, in the late 16th and early 17th century. So I'm writing about that. That road 
the way that it facilitated circulation, the circulation of commodities um, in this moment of kind of the rise of capitalism and the kind of like racialized conflicts that emerge along the road uh, and interrupt, disrupt, uh, uh, expropriate, recuperate um, those commodities in ways that sort of enable other kinds of life and maybe even freedom to emerge. Hmm. Um, I very much look forward to reading that book when that comes out, and I hope I get to interview you about it. Um, well, uh, Professor Nemzer, thank you so much for your time, and um, it's been a great interview. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. It's a pleasure, and thanks for talking to me about it.